The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Our sermon text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This morning we continue our series in Philippians, and it's a, let me just say as a dad, it's a joy to be able to raise my kids in a people, with a people like you all who have invested and poured into our children. Would you join me as we pray now? Father in heaven, we're asking that in these moments now you would open our eyes to see wondrous things from your book that we would behold your majesty and glory afresh. And then out of that wonder, out of seeing more of you, we would live differently. We would be changed. We would be transformed so that we would live and look more and more like your son, Jesus. So do that work in and through us this morning. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dunkin' Donuts has their motto, America runs on Dunkin'. But if we were being more honest, I think we could say America runs on fear. Or, more broadly, our entire world runs on fear. If you look at the news, breaking news, the next fearful, anxiety-producing thing, Many of our financial decisions are driven by fear of the future, fear of inflation, fear of the economy tanking. Businesses can be driven by fear of competition. Let's, you know, work on our patents or maybe the fear of failure. Employees can be driven by the fear of getting fired. Parents can let fear drive their decisions for education or for extracurricular activities. If I don't get my child into soccer at two years old, they're never going to play in the World Cup. Students are driven by fear of not getting into grad school or a job after graduation. Fear motivates voters, lest they lose their rights or their way of life. I'm going to eat healthier for fear of diabetes or a heart attack. Fear can lurk behind so many of our decisions. Our world flourishes and runs on fear. And at first glance, in our text this morning, it almost seems like Paul 
is using fear-based motivation. Do you see that in verse 12? He says, work out your own salvation. And then he says this, with fear and trembling. So a number of problems arise in that tiny phrase this morning. What does it mean to work out our salvation? Does that mean we're trying to somehow earn our salvation? That doesn't sound quite right. Is that what you're saying, Paul? And the second is, Paul, are you motivating us to work out our salvation, whatever that means, with fear? Fear Fear-based motivation? Now, If you've been in church for a while, if you know your Bible, if you've read your Bible at all, you know that Paul is also the one who wrote Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And then he says, not as a result of works. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or he's also the one that wrote 2 Timothy 1, 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12? Well, we'll see in just a moment. Let me just remind us of where we're at in our series in Philippians. The last two weeks, we looked at this Christ hymn, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, that talked about the humility of Jesus, his obedience all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then God has highly exalted him, the name that is above every name. And now he says, therefore... In light of that, I want you to see that Christians, believers, are to shine as lights in the world. He uses the example of Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished as the motivation of how we are to live. This morning, Paul is writing to the believers in Philippi to say this is how we ought to live in light of that glorious reality. If we're truly in Christ, and if Christ has died for us, and he's greatly exalted, and we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, how should we live right now? What should our lives look like together as a church body? What, what, what should it look like? That's what Paul is addressing. And he's not just writing to individuals, but he's writing to the church at large. And he is teaching... Um, what we often call progressive sanctification, the ongoing outworking of the new life that we've already received at salvation. So the problem that Paul was addressing is that there were, in fact, some who were saying works are needed for your salvation. If you look in chapter 3, he says, beware of the evildoers. This is verse 2. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So there were some who put confidence in the flesh, put confidence in their works, namely circumcision. They were saying, you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so there were some who were glorifying works of the flesh. And then in verse 18 of chapter 3, do you see that? He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So there are some who are saying, you've got to add to your salvation. You've got to do this to be saved. And others who say, you can just live any way you want to be saved. And that, they're, they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
two groups that are getting it wrong. So the main point of our passage this morning is that believers are to work out their salvation because God is at work in us. Work out your salvation because God is at work in us. Or let me put it another way. Live as believers because you're now truly believers in Jesus. Let your external behavior as a church reflect the inner reality of being hidden in Christ. That's what Paul is getting at this morning. And my aim in this sermon is that we would let our external behavior, what we live and what we live like, what we say, what we do, reflect the inner reality of who we truly are if we are in Christ. So that we would shine as lights in this world. What this world needs more than anything else is a people that really lives what they believe. That really stands firm and lives out exactly what they believe. What we need here on earth more than anything else are more heavenly outposts. So that people see that's what I want to be like. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But he talks about the church shining as a light for Christ. Kind of like those dimmable light bulbs that go from, you know, their lowest setting and then you turn them up and then they're just blinding. And he's saying, that's what I want the church to do. So we're going to look at our passage in two main parts. Verses 12 and 13, where he talks about, he's answering the question, how does sanctification work? And then 14 to 18, how does sanctification look? How does sanctification work? And then how does it look? So look with me at verses 12 and 13. He moves from Jesus' obedience to death, even death on a cross. And then now he says, therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what he's saying is, in light of Jesus' lordship over everything, this name that is above every name, therefore, in light of that, make sure he's the lord of your life and of your community, your church. Notice Paul's fatherly love and just gentleness here. He calls them my beloved Later in chapter 4, he says, you are those I love and long for, my joy and my crown. So there's this fatherly affection and tone in Paul. Now we come back to our earlier question. How are we to work out our own salvation? We saw from all those earlier texts in Ephesians and 1 Timothy and Titus that we cannot earn our salvation because salvation is by grace alone. Well, the word work out means to produce or to bring about or to accomplish or to create. And that actually seems even more weird if you substitute those words in place of it. Produce your salvation. Bring about your salvation. Create your salvation. That can't be right. One commentator says it's a continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. So what does it mean if we don't earn our salvation, but we're to work out our salvation? Well, it means to live and display the grace of Jesus that is already at work in you within the wider community. And we'll see this as we go into verse 13, but why don't we just look there now? It says, 
For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Because God is already at work in you to bring about his work of salvation in your life. Now, work it out. I think the best way to illustrate this is John 15, where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. You guys remember this? And he says this, I am the true vine, you are the branches. And if you're in the vine, then you're going to bear fruit. But if you're not in the vine, then you're going to be burned. You're not part of the the true vine. And what he's doing there is he says, don't bear much fruit in order to be attached to the vine, but instead bear fruit because you're already attached to the vine. The reality is that you're already in Christ. You've already received of his blessings. You're already hidden with him. The spirit of God already dwells within you. Now bear fruit in keeping with that reality. Do the very thing you were designed to do. So let your behavior reflect the true identity that is hidden in Christ. This is why when we just baptized people, we said to them in the third question, do you intend by God's grace to follow him as Lord and to obey all of his teachings? We're saying, do you intend to do the very thing that you've already said that has happened to you? that you've been transformed by God. The spirit of Christ is already dwelling within you. So in the same way that Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia, the church is to be a heavenly outpost here on earth. Now he says, do this with fear and trembling. And this gets to our second question that we asked earlier. Is Paul motivating us with fear-based motivation? This word fear and trembling could mean to be scared and full of dread and terror uses the same word, word in Luke 21, where it says the people faint with fear when the Son of Man comes in the cloud with power and great glory. So this is like a nightmare. This is real fear. And yet it could also mean in other contexts like reverence and awe. Now, let's look at the context which Paul has in mind. He's just talked about Jesus, the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What is he talking about in that Christ hymn right there? He's talking about worship. He's talking about people who are all in awe of the Savior. He's talking about praise be to God. And so in light of that, I think he's talking about not so much as dread, but worship of Jesus as glorious. So this, we're to work out our salvation with this attitude of awe and reverence and humble submission. It's the proper disposition that God's people are to have if we could behold Jesus in all of his glory. Yes, there would be fearfulness and trembling, and yet there would be great love that would well up in our hearts, wouldn't there? If we were at the foot of the cross, if we could literally see it before our eyes, we would fall on our faces and we would worship. If we could see Jesus in all of his fullness and glory, yes, we would fall on our face. Yes, we would bow the knee. Yes, we would say, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. And yet we would say, but by the blood of Jesus, I come boldly with confidence to this throne of grace. So yes, there's this trembling and fear, and yet there's this awe and reverence because of of who God is and all that he's done. And, And this makes sense because 
if we look back to the situation among the Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 28, he says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Let fear of others be displaced by what? A greater fear, a better fear, an awe and a reverence of God and of who he is and of what he has done. So this is a joy-based motivation, an awe-based motivation, that a superior fear would displace all of those little fears that we have. Don't worry about the economy. Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he will bless his people in order to accomplish his purposes. And even the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the advance of the church. So, when the people of God are in awe of the greatness of God, I think it functions to be like a disinfectant for the church of its selfishness. See if you're tracking with me here. When the church gets united around and seeing clearly the glory of Christ, as we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, the thing that Paul has been calling them to beware of is selfish ambition and envy and rivalry and looking only to your own interests and not to the interests of others. And if we see Jesus rightly, it's hard to be petty and small, isn't it? If we're singing hallelujah to Jesus, it, it would be absurd to think, man, I didn't get my seat today. Someone's sitting in my seat. Or, or if we're praising God for the glories of the cross, and then as we're singing, we're thinking, I really hope the person in front of me hears how great of a singer I am. That would just be weird. That would be absurd. So, so when we see the glory of Christ rightly, it disinfects us of our natural tendencies towards selfishness and self-serving. Oh, let's unite around the things that are truly worth uniting around. The beauty of Christ and the advance of his church. Now, he comes to the ground for this command in verse 13. Look with me there. Why can we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So salvation is by God's initiative alone. And so God is at work in us to achieve and carry out this gracious saving work. That means God both gives us the desire and the energy in order to carry out this work, his commands. And this is all of a gift from God. And yet we cannot be passive. This is one of those challenging texts in scripture. Salvation is completely, 100% a gift, and you need to work it out. Pastor John Piper called this tension between God's work and our work, acting the miracle. And he described it like this. Let me read it. He said, acting a miracle is different from working a miracle. If Jesus tells a paralyzed man to get up and he gets up, Jesus works a miracle. But if I am the paralyzed man and Jesus tells me to get up and I obey and get up, I act the miracle. If I am dead Lazarus and Jesus commands me to get up and I obey, Jesus works the miracle and I act the miracle. 
So when it comes to killing my sin, I don't wait passively for the miracle of sin killing to be worked on me. I act the miracle. For example, if Paul says, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he tells me to put my sin to death. I should not wait for God to kill it while I remain passive, but he tells me to kill it by the spirit. Sin killing is a miracle of the spirit, but I do not wait passively. I act the miracle. That's what we have in view in our passage. It's God who gives it as a gift. He gives salvation as a gift. He gives desires and will, and we need to act in accord with that reality. This is the same thing we see described in Ezekiel 36. You remember where he says, in the new covenant, I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to put in this heart of flesh. And then what does he say? Ezekiel 36, 27. And he says, I will put my spirit within you. And then I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does that mean we can just disobey and do whatever we want? Well, no. But does that mean he's just going to do all of it and we don't have to do anything? Well, no. But he's given us all that we need in order to actually do that reality. His spirit dwelling within us to walk in his statutes and to obey his rules. This is actually the same thing we see in the benediction in Hebrews chapter 13. I think Pastor Sam used that last week. It says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. It's God who works in us and he's equipped us in order to do his will. That's that tension. This is why slogans and mottos sometimes aren't helpful. Have you ever heard this slogan? All religions say do, Christianity says done. And you guys heard that before? All other religions say do, Christianity says done. And there's some truth there, right? All other religions say you must do this in order to be saved. And we would say Jesus alone saves. It's been done. And yet, Christianity has a lot of things you must do. You must love God. You must love other believers. You must fight sin. You must walk in a manner worthy. You must work out your own salvation. And yet all of this doing is rooted and grounded in the reality that God is working in us by the indwelling power of his spirit. And so what we should walk away with this morning is not another long list of to-dos, though we are called to work it out, but because God is already at work in us. His spirit dwells within us. The very desire to do anything good is from him. And he gives us the power to do that as well. Colossians 1.29 says, we toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Colossians 1.29, God's energy at work in us. It's really a glorious reality. And God does this for his good pleasure, namely our eternal salvation. What God has begun, he will bring to completion. That's why Paul can write in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So perhaps this morning, some are discouraged over their sin. This morning, you're just, 
you walked in here and you're just very, very acutely aware of your sinfulness. And you're thinking, Pastor, that all sounds good and all, but I still struggle with impatience and anger and lust and laziness and gossip and worry and just not trusting God. This message says to us is that God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which means the fact that you're discouraged over your sin means that God's working. People who aren't believers don't generally find discouragement over their sin, or at least not a godly grief. The fact that if you're discouraged over a particular sin pattern means there's a godly grief there, and that's a gift of God. He's at work in you. And then you can mourn and lament your sin, which is another gift of God. And then you can repent of your sin, which is also a gift of God. And then you can call upon the name of the Lord in faith, and that's a gift of God. And then you can ask him, oh Lord, help me to work out my salvation with fear and awe and reverence and trembling. And that's a gift of grace. And then you can recommit yourself to walk by faith. All of it is a gift. And so don't be despondent over your sin. Don't stay there. Receive the very gifts that he gives you in order to walk by faith. This leads us to our next section in verses 14 to 18. We looked at how progressive sanctification works and now how it looks. In this second section, we see how it looks. Look with me at verse 14. He says, we're going to read to 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The main command here is there in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And at first it seems maybe like an easy thing. Oh, just don't grumble and complain. And then we sort of look more closely and it's like, oh, it's all-encompassing. In all things, don't grumble and complain. That, that's a hard, hard thing to do. And here there's an allusion to Israel. Do you remember Israel in the Exodus? Exodus 16, Numbers 14. What was one of their primary sins as they came out? Grumbling. Moses, where's the water? Moses, where's the food? Moses, we'd like something other than bread. I'm gluten-free, right? This constant complaining. Moses, Moses, who died and made you king? Why are you in charge? Just constant complaining. And Israel was guilty of unbelief and it manifested as grumbling. And so now he says, in everything that you do, don't grumble. Instead, look with me at verse 16. He says, holding fast to the word of life. So instead of being consumed with complaining, hold firmly to the gospel and be preoccupied in advancing and proclaiming this gospel. Now he gives us the result of this not grumbling. He says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So what he's asking for, what he's calling for, is for the church to stand out as a pure and blameless people. 
this gospel outpost, if you will, that in the same way that Philippi was this Roman colony in Macedonia, the church is to be a heavenly colony here on earth. We're to look a certain way. People are to be able to look in and see that we are pure and blameless children of God. He wants the church to rightly reflect the transformative power of the gospel. Do our lives, does our behavior reveal that God's at work in us and through us? Or do we look just like the world? Do we argue just like the world? Do we divide just like the world? Do we fight amongst ourselves just like the world? Or are we different? What he's saying here is, I want you guys to be really different. Because in the same way that Israel, when I brought them out of Egypt, what was the one thing I wanted them to do? I wanted them to look different so that the rest of the world would say, that's God's people. And they constantly failed in that. When he says a crooked and twisted generation, that's a quotation of Deuteronomy 32.5. And he was speaking of Israel. He was saying, you all became this crooked and twisted generation. And now he's saying, the church is God's people here on earth. And I don't want you to fail like Israel constantly failed. They looked just like the nations around them. Idolatry, wickedness. And he says, but now the church, because I have placed my spirit within them, they can truly live out the glorious call upon their lives and that they will shine like the stars in the heavens. And people will see the church and say, oh, that's God's people. Those are people who shine in the midst of this wicked, crooked, twisted generation. The idea is that Israel failed, but the church will not fail because God has given his spirit, Jesus' blood. The fact that he wills and works for his good pleasure in us. We will accomplish this task. And so work it out. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. The church has the magnificent opportunity right now to shine in this world. The world is supposed to look in. Yes, they might hate us for some things, but we're to shine forth the glories of Christ. We are a people who are shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who live for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then who love each other in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, look with me at verses 16 to 18. Paul gives his personal appeal to the Philippians to live up to their true identity. He says, so that in the day of Christ, This is verse 16. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If you see the word proud in verse 16, it might be a little bit surprising. Paul's been calling for people to not be selfish to not be self-aggrandizing, and yet he wants to be proud or to boast. What's going on there? What Paul is doing is not boasting in himself, but he's boasting in what Christ has done. Paul is enjoying and thanking God for his work in and through the Philippians, through him. 
So he compares his ministry like a runner running or a laborer working. He says, I didn't run in vain or labor in vain, but he wants the Philippians to persevere all the way to end so that it would give him joy because it would show that his labor was not in his own strength, but was in the strength of what God was doing. You see that? It validates Paul's ministry. He was not laboring in his own strength. The fact that they finish, if the Philippians finish and are pure and blameless and they carry these things out, it shows that Paul was truly laboring in the strength that Christ gave him. So Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And so Paul's saying, I'm laboring to build this house, you Philippians. But it only works if the Lord is building it. And what Paul is saying is, he's using this image of a drink offering that would be offered on the altar that's poured out over uh, uh, another burnt offering. And, and he envisions his life as being a sacrifice before God. And he's saying that I'm being spent. My life is being spent for your sake. And yet I don't begrudge that reality. He's saying it brings me joy. Because you're going to reach your final destination and you all will shine as lights for God. And so there's this multiplying joy that motivates Paul and ought to motivate the Philippians. So he's not moping around, woe is me, as he's in jail, but he's motivated by their persevering grace in the gospel. So our passage calls believers to work out our salvation because God is the one who is at work in us so that we would shine like the stars in the heavens in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And the reality is that we live in a world that is dwelling in deep darkness. There's so much brokenness in our world. So much confusion, so much godlessness, uh, the most basic realities people are questioning and unsure where to go. People are asking, is, is there anything more in this world than, than what I know? And we collectively, as the church, have an opportunity to shine forth the beauty and the majesty and the transformative power of the gospel when we work out our salvation individually, corporately, and when we don't grumble. It's really striking. That was the chief thing that Israel was known for, grumbling. And he says, don't want that to be true of the church. Don't be a bunch of complainers. And by God's grace, I don't think we are. And yet, all the more, let's be those who shine the light of Christ. We're going to do a whole series in Advent, starting next week on light and the biblical theological theme of light as it moves through the scriptures. For some this morning who have yet to trust in Christ, maybe all of this just goes over your head and you're not trusting in Jesus. You don't really believe anything that I've said. We invite you to see in us the beauty of what it looks like to have people who have been transformed by the gospel. That's sort of a bold thing to say, isn't it? And yet, I think it's true. 
we, we would encourage you, join any one of our small groups. You will see people who genuinely love one another. Come to our Sunday school classes. You will see people who value God's word and seek to live it out. Come into our worship services. We take these things dead serious. We're not here to just entertain you. We believe that life and death hangs in the balance, and we want you to come and see the beauty and the glory of Christ. We don't do it perfectly. We sometimes do grumble and complain, and yet we do believe that here in this church family, we are increasingly shining forth the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, his transformative power at work in us. Now, there might be some objections. You might be thinking this morning, what if I don't desire to obey God? If God gives us the will and works the will and the work in us, what if I don't even have the will? What if I don't desire God? Does that mean I'm not saved? Or what if my desires are weak? It's a worthwhile question. King David wrote Psalm 38, 9 and 10. He says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has also gone up from me. So there is a place for those who are looking to God to say, all of my strength is empty, and, and I feel like there's no hope. I don't even desire. There might be one speck of desire, but even that is so weak. And yet, that little speck of desire is the evidence of God's grace. And so, cry out for help and ask him for more holy desires for him to be at work in you. Psalm 34 says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. Pray. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The command to work out our salvation this morning with fear and trembling is not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3 says his commands are not burdensome. So why are they not burdensome? This call to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's because God invites us to walk in his ways that will lead to everlasting life. So what you get before you this morning is not, you know, the finger pointed, work harder, do more. No, the idea is that we are orphans wandering about the streets, starving. Our ribs show, eating out of dumpsters, stealing for our basic needs, covered in filth and grime without father or mother or family. This is our plight, and this is the plight of all humanity. And then Jesus beckons us into his home, and he says, I've reserved a room for you. I have a warm bed for you. Take a bath. Come sit at my table and feast. And then he says, but I have rules. You have to stop eating out of the dumpster. That's what his commands are. You have to stop stealing because all you have to do is ask and I'm going to give you everything that you need. You don't run the streets by night. You stay under my shelter. That's what his commands are. That's what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we have been graciously loved by the God of the universe. And he says, I have rules. Yes, work it out. But it's all gracious things because in these things, you will walk in the ways of life and not death. And he wants us to do this together as one collective body 
so that we'll shine more brightly for Jesus. How much grumbling does it take to undermine a community? Not a lot. Remember Aaron and Miriam? Who died and made you king, Moses? And then everyone's like, yeah, what they said. And then, you know, they turned leprous and all that. So there's, it doesn't take much, but when we all live out our true identity in Christ, we become that heavenly outpost that just shines so that the world sees and that they would know Jesus. I'll end with this. Jesus said to the church, and may this be true of us, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, church, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. They may see you working out your salvation with fear and trembling. They may see that you don't grumble and complain so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that they would come to saving faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do that miracle even as we act the miracle of walking in your ways. So incline our hearts to you. Cause us to trust you all the more and then to obey you and your commands because they are not burdensome, but are a sweet invitation to walk in paths of righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.